Now, on April 10th, 1912, the largest ship ever at the time set sail on its maiden voyage, the RMS Titanic. It's a story all of us know. In its day, the ship itself was a marvel. It was truly the dawn of the mega cruiser line. On board was a gymnasium, swimming pool, upscale restaurants, luxury cabins. Today, we take these things for granted because the cheapest cruise liner has them all and, and more. But back then, it was truly revolutionary. Typically, crossing the Atlantic was a cold, miserable, dangerous experience. But now, it was a vacation. The Titanic departed on its maiden voyage from Southampton, England to New York City. Had some of the wealthiest people in the world on board at the time, among its 2,200 passengers and crew. They wanted to partake in this momentous occasion when the unsinkable ship set sail. The Titanic had the most advanced safety features at the time, including a double hull and 16 watertight compartments. It was deemed the safest ship in the world. And his captain, Edward Smith, was reported to have said that God himself could not sink this ship. Maybe that's what makes the story so riveting. There was so much hype and hubris. But in the end, the unsinkable ship sunk. On April 14th, 1912, four days into the journey, lookout Frederick Fleet spotted an iceberg dead ahead in Titanic's path. It was a moonless night. Visibility was extremely low in the pitch black darkness. But by the time the iceberg was spotted, it was too late. They tried to change course, reverse the engines, but it was no use. They slammed right into the side of the iceberg. It tore into the hull of the ship. The Titanic was designed to remain afloat even if four of its components were completely flooded, but the iceberg compromised five. The ship was doomed, and the captain gave the order to abandon ship. That's where the real tragedy comes in because they did not have enough lifeboats. Ship had a capacity of some 3,000 people, but only enough lifeboats for 1,200 people. And to make matters worse, the crew was not trained to handle an emergency, and they launched most of the lifeboats when they were half full. And so of the 2,200 passengers and crew, over, over 1,500 would perish. The sinking of the Titanic was a shock to the world. But that shock was doubled later when it was found out that the captain and the crew received warnings. Not once, but several times that Titanic received these radio warnings from other ships telling them that they were headed straight into an ice field. On April 11th, they received six warnings from other ships that had stopped or were passing through heavy ice. April 12th, five warnings. April 13th, three warnings. And then on April 14th, seven warnings. All of these messages were written down, logged, passed up to the captain. They were fully aware that headed right in their path or directly in their path was a huge ice field. But every message like this was ignored. The captain and the officers never took action. They did not change their course. They didn't slow their speed. They kept full speed ahead, which at the time was 22 knots. And to be sure, these warnings were genuine. When the vessel Carpathia later showed up to rescue the Titanic survivors, Her captain described the area as just an ice field with some 20 extremely large icebergs over 200 feet tall. This was a serious danger. But time and time again, the crew ignored these warnings. Why, you might ask? Well, they, they really thought nothing bad was going to happen to them. They truly convinced themselves that this was an unsinkable ship. 
Well, they thought they'd be fine. And also they were motivated by money. They didn't want to slow down or stop. Every delay into New York meant money lost. So preoccupied with their greedy desires and convinced of their own security, they ignored all these warnings. And no doubt, after they struck that iceberg and they started to sink, they sure wished they could go back and heed those warnings. That's just not how it works, though. And ignoring those warnings, they sealed their own doom. Now, you might scoff at the Titanic's captain and crew and and ridicule them for ignoring all those warnings. How, How could they do that? But how many people are still like this today? They carry on with their, with their lives full speed ahead, living as they please while ignoring every warning that comes their way. Like, warning, there will be a judgment. Warning, your, your every sin will be brought to light. Warning, you will be held accountable. And no one will stand in this judgment. Every single one of us is guilty before God and will face his righteous judgment. There's no escape, but there is rescue. Your only hope then is not in yourself. You and I were were guilty before God, but hope is found in Christ who endured God's wrath on the cross that we might be rescued, saved from God himself, saved from the wrath to come. But Christ is the only life raft to safety. You either enter and live or remain and perish, but you have been warned. And this morning, we're going to hear such a word of warning from God's word. I just pray that, that you heed it. This warning comes from 2 Peter chapter 3. So you can open your Bibles now to 2 Peter chapter 3. Then you might be wondering real quick, did I hear that right? I thought we're going through Colossians. He said 2 Peter chapter 3. Did I miss something? No, you didn't miss something. We are going through Colossians, but I did say 2 Peter 3. Just to to quickly level with you, I too was at the Shepherds Conference all last week and had really zero time to prepare a a brand new message from scratch. But you know, from Sunday mornings to Sunday nights to Wednesday nights in the past, I think I'm coming up on 900 messages here. And you're not going to remember them all, right? So just for self-preservation, I decided to call up to bat an old sermon I preached before. This goes back to 2013. In fact, I don't even think most of you were here in 2013. So this will be new for most of you anyway. We will resume Colossians next week. I had to do it. But for now, we're going to transport to the end of 2 Peter. In this letter, Peter was specifically dealing with the rise of false teachers in the church. And one of the hallmarks of these false teachers was their denial of a coming judgment, especially in connection with the return of Christ. They basically said, you know, God's not going to judge you. Jesus is not coming back. You can live as you please. But this is wrong, and and Peter writes to set the record straight. There's going to be some who mock and reject, but at least they're going to be warned. But Peter has a dual purpose in writing this. He's not just warning and rebuking the mockers. He's also writing to us, to believers, and he writes to us to encourage us. He wants the faithful to remember that God has not forgotten you, that Christ will return for you, and the end of this world for us means the beginning of the next, the beginning of our eternity with God. And so we have no need to fear or be dismayed, but rather be encouraged, endure, just endure until the end. So we're going to drop into this passage now. In many respects, it stands alone as a powerful message to the church and to the world. These words 
can be heavy words that the coming judgment may not be the most fun thing to talk about, but they're part of God's inspired word. He left them for us for a reason. We need passages like this to remind us, to wake us from our slumber, to help us remember what this life is about, what comes after this life. You know, most people's goal in life is comfort. They just want to be comfortable and happy. And to a degree, that's understandable. But for, for most, that, that's all they want in church as well. They just, you know, just have a good time. Let's not get too serious. Keep it light. Like, let's not talk about sin and judgment and all that stuff. But, you know, God knows what we need. Yeah, there's a time for levity, for humor. But, but God knows what we need. And sometimes we need to be confronted with uncomfortable thoughts. But the people who truly live the fullest lives and lives of, of deeper peace are those who live in light of the end. It's like Solomon says in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 2, It's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, because that is the end of every man, and the living takes it to heart. Even as we reflect on the loss of our sister in Spain, it, it helps us remember, those who are still living, what our end will be too. And what Solomon basically says, it's better for your soul to go to a funeral than a party. Why? Because you're being confronted with just reality, the reality of a, a sad, broken, fallen world and your own end. There's nothing wrong with having a good time, but there are more important things going on. This life will end, this world will end, and, and what next? Where are you headed? And the question is, are you prepared? There are warning signs everywhere. And they tell you what's coming. They tell you what to do about it. God has left his word for that reason. This is a glaring warning side telling you what's to come when you die. What will you heed the message or not? It's all about time. Solomon in Ecclesiastes tells us to consider our time on earth for our days are numbered. We're dealing with limited time here. We have a short time to live this life and then comes eternity. And the amazing thought is what you do now with this time has some effect on that time. So you better get this time right. Not everyone does. Some people, as Solomon says, they want to spend all of their days living in the house of pleasure. It's only concerned with the moment. But the warning signs are there for a reason. It's not going to end well for them, neither in this life or the life to come. And just like Ecclesiastes, our text, 2 Peter 3, verses 3 through 7, tells us of the importance of time, that it really is all about time. When you put time itself into its proper perspective, everything in life makes sense. Everything in life falls into place. And we want to learn these lessons now this morning from 2 Peter. And more specifically from 2 Peter 3, verses 3 through 7, I want to show you three lessons about time that you may spend your time well in light of eternity. Three lessons about time that you might spend your time well in light of eternity. And the first is a lesson from the present that there will be mockers. A lesson from the present, there will be mockers. We'll read this as we go. Look at Second Peter 3, verse 3. He's wrapping up his letter but he says to them, know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? 
For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. And Peter's speaking to the churches here, to believers. He's got a message of first importance as he winds down his letter. It's a message of warning to believers, telling them what to expect in these last days. Last days, it's a technical term used by the writers of the New Testament. It refers to this entire age, the church age, the last age before the kingdom comes. This world has been dominated in every age by those who oppose God and his people. That will not continue forever. This is the the last age before God's kingdom comes and man's rebellion ends. These are the last days. And still, though, we as a church have to live through these last days for however long they last. But Peter does not want Christians to be unaware or caught off guard about what will take place in these last days. We know that false teachers will arise. We've seen that in Colossians, but... Here in Peter, he lets known or lets it be known that, that mockers will arise as well. This is his first lesson about time. It's from the present. There will be mockers. The New Testament makes crystal clear the fact that, that there's always going to be those who hate Christ, who hate those who belong to Christ. They will slander. They will malign. They will persecute in many forms. I want to show you this. You can keep a, a finger in Second Peter and go back to Second Timothy, chapter three. Just back to Second Timothy, chapter three. That that is Paul's final letter, just like Second Peter was Peter's final letter. Both written before these men were going to die. Paul himself knew he's about to be executed just for following Christ by faith, but he was at peace. He had run his race well. He knew what was going to happen to him after he died. He had no fear, but he wanted to use his last moments to just tell the church what to do, what to expect, how to live in this world. Listen to what he writes in 2 Peter, or rather 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 1 through 5. He says, realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come for men will be lovers of self, Lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they've denied its power, avoid such men as these. It's quite the list when you think about it, though, lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. I mean, could there be more prophetic words for today? This is every age, but do you think things are getting better or worse as the the last days tick on? We're reaching new depths and people being haters of good and lovers of evil. And we know in our culture, monumental lines are being crossed. You know, not too long ago, homosexuality was normalized, but don't think it was going to stop there. Now we're witnessing that the transgender revolution, which is built off the denial that there are two genders or two sexes. And now, according to a BBC video that's being shown to kids in British schools, there are apparently over 100 gender identities. Gender neutral, non-binary, gender fluid, gender queer, that the list goes on and on and on. But this gender confusion is just the latest example in man's rebellion against God and his independence from God. 
his elevation of self. Now, I reject a God who would tell me who I am or what I am. I'm going to remake myself however I want. I'm the creator. My will be done. And now, if you're going to say otherwise, if you're going to say this is madness, if you're going to say it's just not true, if you're going to say this is morally wrong, if you're going to say that what God says about sexuality, you're going to be met with the greatest enmity, hatred, vitriol. The same BBC video series went on to tell kids, quote, people can go to prison if it's shown they're disrespecting or being hateful to people because of a difference that person perceives, end quote. Well, you may not be in prison yet. You can be sure for now you're going to be mocked. Like Paul says later in chapter 3, verse 12 of 2 Timothy, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so Paul would say, basically, wake up. And Peter has the same message, just wake up. This is the age we live in, that these last days learn to expect what comes. You can go back to 2 Peter now. And Peter is telling us to expect, among many things, mockers. Mockers are those who don't just poke fun at the truth, but they deride the truth. They preach tolerance. But when it comes to Scripture, they have anything but tolerance. They have the greatest intolerance for the Bible. They hate it. They want nothing more than to silence it. And mockery is one of their favorite tools. You'll notice, though, here that Peter specifically highlights those who who mock the second coming of Christ. You see that? They know the promises of Christ's return. The Bible contains countless prophecies that Jesus is coming back to rule, to reign. These mockers know this, and so they ask, in verse 4, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. And so they're asking, you know, where's this God of yours? There's been no judgment so far. Life seems to just keep on going like normal. Every day is the same. The sun rises, the sun sets. The world keeps spinning. There's no change. There's no miracles. Everything's the same. So if this God is so real and he's going to judge, where is he? Peter's going to answer that shortly. But for now, he's simply telling you to, to expect this. To expect this type of mockery. Mockers will come. People will mock. And if you're of the faith, well, that means they're going to mock you as well for believing such things. Let's also ask the why. Why do they do it? Why do people mock God and, and his word of, of judgment ever since the beginning? Well, Peter says here in verse 3, because they're following after their own lusts. See, it's really hard to be a lover of self and a lover of pleasure when your conscience keeps nagging you, telling you, you know, there is a God in heaven and you're going to have to give an account for every thought, word, and deed. But that, that's a huge buzzkill. So they have to silence that voice. That's exactly what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. This is in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. They know God, but they suppress that truth in unrighteousness. 
that they want to have their lust. They want to go after their own way. They don't want their conscience nagging them and convicting them. What they're doing is wrong. And in turn, as they get to a point of hardness, God hands them over. It says in Romans 1, he gives them into their sins, their lusts, their impurity as a form of judgment. Their hearts are hardened. Sin is magnified. And to keep their conscience suppressed, though, mockery emerges. They don't even want to entertain the thought that there's a holy God in heaven who will stand, or they, who, uh, of whom they will stand before, who will judge their sin. I mean, just that thought interferes with their self-indulgent lifestyle. So they do away with these thoughts. They suppress their consciences. And like I said, often this comes in the form of mockery. It's, it's hard to be confronted with the truths of God, God's word and have to defend yourself, defend your behavior is right, especially when your conscience is nagging you. It's so much easier just to make fun of the Bible or ridicule Christians or, or mock Jesus. And speaking of, you do realize that Jesus was mocked first, right? And he bore the mockery of the world often. Now, throughout his ministry, they called Jesus a bastard, a drunkard, a blasphemer, and a devil. What do you think they're going to call you? Jesus said in Matthew 10, 25, if they've called the head of the house Beelzebul, which means the devil or Satan, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Also, just think about Christ's passion week and his time before the cross. You know that first he was mocked and slapped by the Jewish religious leaders. These are the people who should have received him, but they rejected him and mocked him as the Messiah. Then the Roman soldiers got a hold of him, and after beating him to a bloody pulp, they put a a royal purple robe on him, a robe a king would wear. They put a crown of thorns on his head, and they took turns coming in front of him, kneeling down and saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They proceeded to to continue to, to beat him, to spit on him. It didn't even end there. Once crucified, it's a constant parade of Jewish religious leaders And travelers would walk in front of him on the cross and continue to mock and slander. And all the while, Jesus said nothing. He just remained silent. Isaiah 53, 7 speaks of him and says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. It was just a part of the suffering of the Lord on our behalf. He did this for us. Because in reality, we would have been there mocking him too. Like Isaiah 53 says, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But God in his grace and mercy caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. You know, the world though, they, they still mock, they still reject, they still don't believe, they still don't care. But some people do. And Jesus died to save a remnant, a church, and for those who have come to Jesus by faith and they've ended their rebellion against God, they now follow him. Well, that just in turn means that the same world is going to direct their same mocking now to you. Jesus likewise said, Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12, and the Beatitudes, he ended by saying, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil 
against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You know, at least we have the promise of a heavenly reward. But in the time being, in the present, simply expect this. And that, that's Peter's message to us. He's telling us what to expect, to be ready for it. Don't be surprised. Don't be shocked. There will be mockers. Don't be caught off guard when your faith is mark, mocked. And don't let it discourage you. It goes a long way just knowing what is coming, knowing what to expect. You can prepare yourself so in the moment it doesn't rattle your faith. Yeah, when you are mocked, when it's your turn, it, it might sadden you, maybe scare you a little bit. But don't let it deter you from following Jesus for one second. It's, it's the way of the Lord. It's what we're told to expect in a wicked world that hates the light. Heed this lesson, a lesson from the present. Mockers will come, but you stand firm. A second lesson now, it's a lesson from the past as we move on. A lesson from the past that the world is in God's hands. The world is in God's hands. Let's, let's keep reading to verses 5 and 6, 2 Peter 3. He says, For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. Here, Peter doesn't want to just skip over what the mockers were actually saying. They were denying the truth. They were denying the second coming. They were denying the judgment, all in a mocking fashion. And they justified these beliefs based on the notion that, look, the world just keeps spinning, right? Their basic claim was that God has not intervened in the world so far. So why should we believe he's going to do so in the future? But this is a huge oversight. On their part, God has intervened in the world before. The whole world is in his hands. You know, these verses are really directed at the mockers. But the point is very simple. God has stuck his nose into the world's business before. In fact, he started the whole thing, and once upon a time, he destroyed the whole thing. So what makes you think he won't do it again? And to make this point, Peter brings up two events from the past to demonstrate more than anything God's total control and authority over this world, the creation and the flood. And for the mockers to dare think that God would not judge again was a costly oversight. But in reality, it's not really an oversight. It's an outright denial of the truth. That being said, as we look at the world today, it is true that the world largely ticks on in a uniform and ordered manner. Our universe seems stable. It runs like a well-oiled machine. We don't see unexpected things. We don't see gravity all of a sudden reversing where we float up and then come crashing down. The sun doesn't just randomly turn off and stop shining. The moon doesn't fall to the earth. It's a pretty ordered world. In fact, even from the smallest scale, our universe is built on finely tuned order. You may not know this, but in our universe, there's what's called the, the four fundamental forces. These forces explain how matter exists and continues to exist. These are the, the gravitational force, the electromagnetic force, the strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear force. I'll be on the quiz. 
And that the power and the proportion of these forces in relation to one another is so finely tuned that if they were changed just a little bit, it's not just that life could not exist, but matter could not exist. Where did these forces come from? Like Who programmed them? Who ordered them? Well, we know that God did. Natural man will, will acknowledge all of nature's inviolable laws, but he will refuse to acknowledge that they're God's laws. He programmed them. Man will claim that they just came from nowhere. Anything to keep from acknowledging God, because that means that if there's a God, he made them, he's in control, he's the authority, he's the judge, I might have to give an account. That's exactly the case. You know, contrary to the mocker, you don't get all of time, space, matter, that the four fundamental forces, you don't get all that from nothing. You can't explain a creation from, apart from an eternal creator. As Peter here affirms, it was God who created the heavens and the earth. And he did so with just a word. He spoke our existence into being. So here Peter then hearkens back to the Genesis 1 creation account where after creating the world, God separated its waters. He pushed down valleys. He raised up mountains, creating a separation between land and sea. By a word, God created this world's order. And just by a word, God can use that order against us. And that's what God did in the flood, which Peter mentions next. The days of the flood were marked by total chaos and anarchy, violence. God patiently endured, though, man's depravity for centuries. But still, a day of reckoning came. A day of judgment came. And with one word, he, he took this element that's so essential to our life, water, and, and made it the element of our death. Man can survive three weeks without food, but a mere three days without water. The second oxygen, it's, it's our life. But in response to the vast wickedness of man, God used water to bring about our death. The flood from Genesis 6 was like an uncreation of the world where afterwards the, the surface of the earth was once again fully enveloped by water. You know, if the earth was completely level, there's enough water to cover the earth two miles deep. There's never been a water shortage problem, just how it's distributed. And when God spoke, the skies opened up, the fountains of the burst, or fountains of the deep burst, and, and the world was once again covered, and the source of our life, in a sense, became the source of our death. But all this goes to say that, that God holds this world in his hand. He does with it as he pleases. Whatever happens is, is on him. Creation and the flood, though, they're proof positive that, that God owns this world, he runs this world, he has total authority over this world. He will bring this world to account. And where is God now, though, you might ask? And Peter's going to answer that in the verses to come. But if there's a lesson to learn from the past, it's just that God owns this world. And he holds the whole world in his hands. Everything that happens, it's in his hands. And it's precisely because he cares about this world that he's going to judge. He's not going to let man's sin and rebellion have the last word on his perfect creation. You know, God is always active. He's still active. It, the same power he used to create the world, he still uses to sustain the world. Every moment he sustains this creation, which means he's actually sustaining the people who mock him and hate him. 
But a special day will come when God will once again break forth into history and he will bring an end to sin once and for all. And that leads us into our third lesson from time. It's a lesson from the future that the wicked will be judged. In verse 7, a lesson from the future, the wicked will be judged. Let's finish in verse 7. He says, but by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. You may recall how after the flood, God made a covenant with humanity whereby he would never again destroy the world with a flood, with water. But he never said anything about fire. Indeed, both the Old and New Testament joined to testify that of God's intention to bring an end to this world as we know it through fire. But don't, don't misunderstand, the end of the world is not the end of existence. It's simply the beginning of eternity. God washed this world clean once with water, but nothing purifies like fire. And on the day of judgment, this, this universe will be destroyed and replaced with a new heavens and a new earth, Scripture teaches. In fact, Peter says that. Just look down at verse 10. Verse 10 of 2 Peter 3. He says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This verse describes the real global warming, like what's about to happen. Now, I'm sure though this this picture of destruction that Peter painted was, was hard for his audience to actually imagine. But I think today, look, living in the atomic era, we can perhaps envision how this might come to pass. Literally, we, we know that all matter is made up of atoms. Atoms in themselves have a ton of energy. Who would have thought, though, that by splitting the atom, you could release such a catastrophic amount of energy, literally incinerating everything around. And although there's still mystery here, here still, we can envision the end of the world by fire, the, the consuming of the elements. And like the floodwaters, the elements of our destruction are just all around us, simply waiting for the word. But nothing's going to happen until God says so. His word determined the beginning of the world. His word determines the end. Most people today actually believe the world is going to end just by natural means, in a giant meteor, nuclear war, climate change. The most popular version right now, of course, is coronavirus. But the world's end will not be natural. It will be supernatural. And God will bring about an end only at a time that he knows. But again, when this time comes, it's not just the end of the planet. The purpose is it's the end of man's rebellion against his creator. And like Peter says here in verse 7, with the destruction of the world comes what? He says the destruction of ungodly men. It's a day of judgment. And this event refers to none other than the great white throne judgment. 
This is the final judgment when all are made accountable before God for their deeds. And they're judged according to his perfect standard. Everyone at this judgment is judged. No one passes through unscathed. All are rejected. Those who stand before the throne at this point are guilty and will be cast out of God's grace and his presence forever. If you want to see what this is like, just flip over shortly to the right to Revelation 20 and, and you'll read it for yourself. This is a judgment pertaining to all those outside of Christ, only those outside of Christ. Revelation 20 verse 11, where John tells us what's coming. Revelation 20 verse 11, John says in, in the vision he received, Then I saw a great white throne. And him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown in the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's the end, but it's not quite the end. Look at the next chapter, verse 1, chapter 21, verse 1. But after John says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. You know, mockers make fun of judgment and the idea of hell all the time. They picture it as like a wild party place where all the fun people go. And they say things like, it's better to be a king in hell than a servant in heaven. Or, you know, go to heaven for the climate, hell for the people. But these quotes are truly the height of foolish ignorance. And they're going to find a rude awakening. This is a lesson from the future. It's a lesson to be heeded, though, that, that mockers will be judged. The wicked will be judged. It's amazing how many parallels there are between the first global judgment by water and the final global judgment by fire. In both cases, from the flood to the future, the world is dominated by extreme wickedness. In both cases, the unrighteous mock the righteous. In both cases, the wicked are warned and they're offered salvation. But in both cases, the wicked reject all warnings and continue to spurn God. And so they're swept away. It's just like Christ himself said and warned. Matthew 24 verse 37, he said, for the coming of the son of man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking marrying and and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the son of man be. In other words, when it comes, it will be too late. The wicked will be judged. It's the same word of warning Peter has for us as well. This is a serious message. This is a somber message. But it's also a loving message. When someone's in danger, the most loving thing you can do for them is to warn them. 
or because you love them, because you don't want them to fall into this danger, this judgment, the most loving thing you can do is actually tell them and warn them. You love them more than the awkwardness or the fear you have over telling them. Now, if you saw someone floating down a river without a care in the world, but you knew that there's a deadly waterfall just up ahead and you said nothing, that's hatred. You want them to die, essentially, right? But if you love that person, you would say something. You would warn them. You'd yell at them and you'd throw them a rope. You'd provide a way of escape, a means of escape. And this is what God has done for us in Christ. Because all of us were on that path, the path of destruction. And we were all headed for that waterfall. And there's nothing we could do to stop from plummeting over. We all were lost and dead in our sins. But God in his love did something for us. He provided this means of escape or means of rescue. Just like the flood, God offers an ark, an ark of salvation, enter and be saved. Only now Christ is that ark. You go to him and you will live. You enter him by faith and you will be saved from that wrath to come. Now, why are we judged in the first place? Because of the infinite debt of sin, we've racked up before an infinitely holy God. And and don't fool yourself thinking you can pay down an infinite debt by some good works. But Jesus on the cross, you see, he paid that whole debt for you. Being the son of God, he was able to drink the cup of wrath to the full. It's not for him. It, it was your cup. That cup had your name on it, but he, he drank it in your place. He rose from the dead. And if you now go to him by faith, you come to the end of yourself, your resources. You, you cast yourself entirely on him. He promises to forgive you of, of it all, to wipe that slate clean. He promises to make you righteous And that enables God to accept you, to reconcile you to your creator. That's the only way. That is the only way to escape judgment. But if you reject Christ, though, your your doom is, is certain. It's already written. There's nothing else you can do. There's nothing else to stop you from falling off that waterfall. I mean, everyone knows the famous verse, John 3, 16. But do you know the verses that come right after? Oh, you don't have to turn. I'll just read for you John three sixteen and following. Jesus teaching and he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but shall have eternal life. Then he says, For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already. Because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world. And men loved the darkness rather than the light. For their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light. And does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light. So that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought. In God. And for those of you here today who've embraced Christ as your Lord and your Savior by faith, you get to be encouraged by all this. That's what Peter would have for you, that there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. There's no fear. There's no reason to fear. In fact, we look forward, as we read earlier, longing for and hastening the coming day of the Lord, because it means 
our salvation, our, our final salvation. It's the beginning of our time with God. For us, there's no judgment. God has, has saved us just by his free grace as a gift through Christ. And we merely receive. What can we say? But we can take delight and comfort and joy in the fact that even when we die, we need not fear. Eternal life awaits. So for now, though, as you remain, you just press on in the faith. You remain steadfast. And how about use your limited time on this planet to, in love, warn others? When was the last time you warned that loved one, that friend or family member, without the loving message of the cross about what's to come? Consider that today. For those here, though, who might not know Christ, well, be warned. And take this warning to heart. Hebrews 9.27 says, It's appointed for men to die once, and then comes the judgment. There's that cliff, that waterfall, and there's no turning back. You don't know when it strikes. It could be a 24-hour notice. You don't know. But heed this warning that the ark is there. The door isn't shut yet, but it might enter Christ and be saved today, right now. We started off talking about the Titanic, how they, they famously ignored warning after warning of impending danger. But I failed to mention that the last warning they received came just 30 minutes before they struck the iceberg. A nearby ship, the Californian, tried to send the Titanic one more warning. They said they had stopped because they were surrounded by ice. But at the time, the Titanic's radio operator, Jack Phillips, he was so busy sending out a huge backlog of personal messages from people on the ship. This is all by Morse code, mind you, but the Californian's message warned, but it interfered with the Titanic operator. And so he messaged back to the Californian. This was his message. Shut up, shut up, I am busy. End of message. This last urgent message was likewise ignored. Phillips was so busy with life, with work, with the passing pleasures of the world, the things of the world. He ignored that final message that could have saved his life. But little did he know, later that night, he would die in the freezing waters. No one thinks this is their last day. But you might have 30 minutes left. Who knows? This might be your last warning. But turn from your sins. Cry out to God to save you. He will always hear that cry. He will make you new. He'll give you eternal life and peace. Just follow Christ and live. I'll leave you with Isaiah 55, 7, which calls us, Let the wicked forsake his way, and let the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord, for he will have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. We have a God who judges, but a God who forgives. And what will you do with your time? Let's pray. Our gracious God in heaven, we thank you that you are a gracious God in heaven. We know you to be the maker of the world. You made us, and you hold all rights and authority over us. You call us to be holy as you are holy, but we are not. We fall so far short and stand under a purely righteous and just judgment. If you were to judge us all, you would be doing no wrong. You would only be doing what is right. You are a righteous God, but we thank you more that you're a loving God as well. 
A God who, who loved his creation would not let sin and evil get the last word and would redeem it, remake it, restore it. And that's why you sent Christ. You offer us the ark of salvation and the Savior who died on the tree and rose again. That's what you give us, new life, complete forgiveness. You offer to wash us with the waters and to come to new life. You call us to respond. We know it's by your grace that we are saved, but that the warning stands at face value, that we must see our sin, reckon it, and come to the end of ourselves, humble ourselves, and just cry out to Christ. The Savior will never turn away the one who cries to him. But it must be today. Today is the only day of salvation. Tomorrow is not guaranteed for us, Lord. Help us to heed this message. And for those of us who have now, to in love, see our lost friends and family members and neighbors. See them perishing, but to warn them, to, to tell them that the most loving thing we can, that there's an ark, there's a way out. A Savior has come. Go to him. And for us who have, Lord, we just give you thanks. We are encouraged. Help us to use our days wisely. They're numbered, so may we give them back to you and just use them for your kingdom and for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.